Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. (laughs) That's right. That's good enough. (laughs) Oh boy. Let's dive in. Today we have Jamar. We met through a online conversation on systemic racism and he does not hold back. Strap in listeners. Jamar, welcome. So we were on a systemic racism talk together. Boy, was that a conversation. Yeah. What did you think of that? It was good. There was a lot of varying opinions about systematic racism. I think I think everyone can can agree that there is something that has to do with race in this country still. There was different degrees of how severe certain people thought it actually has an impact on their on their lives. And I think I am on the side that it's not as severe, but I think it, it's all circumstantial, it's all situational. I think depending on your makeup as a as a human being, your ability to, to you know to endure emotionally, psychologically, certain things have a greater impact on you than they do on other people. What has your experience with racism been? I mean, I've had racist acts done against me. I, when I was in college, I remember dating a girl who was white, who was from Alabama. And she told me after about three weeks of dating that she could no longer date me because things might get back to her town. And then her mother and father would take her money away to go to school and take her car away so she couldn't date me. Years later, she, was, she ended up dating this very militant Black guy was made her feel like her whiteness would not allow her to be a good mother to his children. It's like, so why are you together then? Why are you with her? So, you know what I mean? But other things happened. Uh, I remember someone spray painted the word nigger on my car when I was in college. I drove a 1987 Honda Civic baby blue hatchback. So the fact that somebody could just disrespect my property like that, it upset me more than the word itself, which I was able to wipe off with some spray paint remover in a matter of minutes. There's always undertones in places. I've never grabbed a hold of it because I always felt like someone someone being racist towards me is their internal problem, right? It's not my problem. I never really felt animosity towards someone because of the color of their skin. I always thought that it was, not to use a Martin Luther King, the conscience of the character, but I always thought it was how someone treated me, determined how much I liked them or didn't like them. What were they doing, you know? I remember in college, you know, going to school in Auburn, Alabama. I remember going to a bar to meet a girl that I had met online. And I, I show up to this bar and it's like the music stopped. Like, and everybody's looking at me like, and somebody was like, nigga, you better get on out of here. I followed the instructions because I value my life. And I was like, I don't need to be anywhere where I'm not wanted. You know, I don't have any desire to try to force my way into situations, you know. I feel like there's plenty of places that will lovingly accept me. So I go where the love is. Racism hasn't played a big part of my life. I think there are things that have happened to me that looking back at it, like when I talk to someone who races at the forefront of everything they think about, they say, oh man, that that happened to you probably because you were black. And I'm like, yeah, or it just might've been the person was an asshole or the person was a douchebag or the person didn't like me for the way I carry myself because, you know, when you're a very confident, charismatic person, 
a lot of people, they don't like it because they don't have the capability. They look at how well you perform as an indictment on their lack of performance. And of course, I know that there are people who see a young Black male who's intelligent, articulate, charismatic, and they don't like it for racial reasons, but they find excuses. They find, oh, it's something you did. Like they find ways. Race is the primary, but they know that they'll be called out. So I think racism has kind of definitely gone into kind of an underground state. And that's where people consider it to be systematic because they'll just find ways to just limit your opportunities. Do you ever feel like you have been limited in your opportunities because of your race? In the military, I did. In the military, I was an officer in the Navy. It definitely felt like it was the good old boys club. But it was fine because I didn't want to be there long term anyway. Like I knew for me, it was a stepping stone. I joined the military because I was a poor black kid from the inner city who did not have money for college, who thought he was better than community college. Not that there's anything wrong with going to community college for some people, but I just knew where my intellect was. I, you know, I scored a 1200 on the SAT. If I had opportunities that I can make the most of them. So being in the military, you know, I'm like, I'm getting a set salary, no matter how much work I do, no matter how much extra work I do, I'm only going to get what I'm making as an O3. And a part of me, I definitely lean towards being a libertarian. I definitely believe in capitalism. When you're in the military, that's not capitalism. And it's not really a meritocracy because there are people playing favorites. There are people scoring other people higher than you because they've got seniority, irregardless of the actual performance on the battlefield, so to speak. There were things that run me the wrong way that told me that there was an internal game here that, that I could choose to play and perhaps succeed, but what, what would be the ceiling? You know, being in the military for 20 years, let's say I made it to like kind of the pinnacle, at the most I'm making 160K a year, right? With some extra benefits and things like that. And then when I retire, maybe I get half of that in retirement. So, okay, maybe I'm getting 80K a year for the rest of my life, right? And I was like, I feel like I'm worth more than that. I feel like rather than waiting for 20 to get to that imaginary goal line, which a lot of people think they're gonna make it to and don't make it to for whatever reason. Just like most corporations, the military is like a pyramid, right? There's one commander in chief, there's a couple of, right? And then it gets spread out and spread out and spread out. So I'm like, what are the odds that I make it to the top of this pyramid in a place that I don't even actually wanna be? Not good. So why don't I bet on myself? Why don't I consider getting out, pursuing entrepreneurship and, and getting a jump start on that in my life? And so. While I felt like there were some things that happened that it, there's a possibility it could have been because I'm Black, but I think it had more to do with the fact that they knew that me being in the military was holding me back. Let's help usher him out of here because he doesn't really fit the mold of what we want. You know, someone who's controllable, someone who takes orders without question. That's just not who I am. I'm somebody who questions everything around him, himself. So military for me was a stepping stone. I'd stayed longer than I thought I would. I definitely got compensated for the sacrifice and still am. So I'm not complaining. I love that you believed in yourself like that and said, I'm better than that. Yeah. Wow. I have a huge ego, but from the standpoint of it was earned because I had my mother, she really invested in me. She really believed in me. She really pushed me. Um, I had a lot of mentors and coaches and I just had people who really allowed me to see the light that I had inside of myself. I know I have above average stamina, so to speak. 
And so to come from where I've come from, I've already exceeded them. So I, I feel like I'm already in bonus land. That's amazing. Thank you. Tell me what entrepreneurship has been like. Well, entrepreneurship is a bumpy, bumpy road. But every win is, is magnified in terms of its value to you and its importance to you. And just the freedom, the freedom it gets. You know, like, I, I won't say that I'll never work for someone. I believe in working with people. So I'm at a stage in my life where I would definitely partner with the right team, the right organization. But inside of me, I know I'm, I'm my own guy. I'm a leader of people. I like to organize things. I like to problem solve. I like to strategize. So for me, I mean, I've been working since I was 12 years old. Started packing groceries. After that, I had a messenger business. I had an airbrush business. So I, I was always kind of just hustling and, and you know, stumbling forward through solving problems for people. So I would say that it is, it's one of those things where there's a lot, there's a lot of moving parts. But luckily, I have the right mindset. I have a growth mindset. I love connecting dots, especially dots that others don't see. I was just funny. I was just, I just wrote a post on Facebook when I was flying out here. And I was talking about that, you know, oftentimes they say, jack of all trades, master of none. But a lot of people don't know the whole quote. It's jack of all trades, master of none, oftentimes the master of one. And for me, the actual skill that I feel like I'm mastering and continue to master is the skill of learning. And so when you learn, you can learn things, but then know, okay, I, I can do that, but I'm not necessarily going to be the best or the most efficient at it. So maybe this particular piece, I outsource that piece, but I know how to do it. And so I can hire someone and I can manage what they're doing effectively. And so I'm a big believer in that. I think entrepreneurs are that jack of all trades, but what they've mastered is solving the problems, bringing people together to help deliver the solution, deploy the solution, so to speak. I just recently started outsourcing something that took me way too long to do, but I do know how to do it. Mm -hmm. But now I'm able to output a lot more because I found yep. somebody who's excellent at just doing that. Yep. Tell me what you're not good at doing. I'm not good at prioritizing my creativity because I have a lot of ideas that flow. I think every night I dream. I feel like I'm an idea machine. I feel like that's the thing. Ideas flow effortlessly through me, through my being. I'm so blessed for that capability. And so for me, not priorities, being able to prioritize them effectively, I think for me, what I need to do more of is give my ideas away. Give them away in terms of content I create to give people ideas. Ideas are a currency nowadays. I mean, that's why I like consulting because I can meet with someone, I can hear what they're doing, what they're up to, and I can see all of the potentiality out of what they're doing and make good suggestions for them. I've tried to do the lone wolf thing for a while. I'm at the point now where I realize most of the best ideas that, I, that I'm going to have that are, that are going to have the greatest impact need to have a team put around them. I really like the idea of uncluttering your mind and mm -hmm. then letting a deeper level of creativity happen. You know, it's one of those things I've been working on it for years and I go through phases where I'm really, really good at it. Here's this little book I have. It's called The Positive, The Positive Journal by Nancy F. Clark. It's a really cute little, you know, book. It's got the little gold pages. This book has what nearly, I guess it's like a 52 week type of thing. It was only 14 bucks, yeah, for 15 bucks. And every day it has like, okay, it gives you some questions. 
and it gives you some things to write down for your gratitude. And so it's all the things that I would normally do, but I would do it very free form, like the artist way. This is just gonna give me a little bit of structure. And, and also because it's small and it's not a lot of lines, you don't feel the pressure to have to go deep, 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 deep. But if you do feel it, you could just keep writing on another piece of paper, but this is like a good starter. I love that. Yeah. Tell me about your childhood. Did you ever write down your dreams then? I don't think I wrote my dreams down a lot. I mean, I actually, I used to write a lot of poetry. I used to write business plans and stuff, but I never really wrote my dreams down. I didn't learn that till much, much later in life, the power of writing down what you want to accomplish. I was in survival mode for, because I had a very turbulent childhood. My mother was, a, was an addict. She was on drugs for many of my younger years. When I was 12, she regained custody of her now four kids. She relapsed again. Here I am, 12 years old, going on 13, man of the house, worried about my mother's safety in the streets in New York, very despondent in school. I would say from like 13 to like 15, my mother was clean at that point, but it was a lot of struggling to make sense of the world, to make sense on why, why me? That was the question I was asking all the time. I was creative in spurts, but you know, I just didn't really have any really strong habits. I was dealing with a lot of anxiety and PTSD and depression around that situation. When I was 15, started playing sports, fell in love with basketball, and that kind of was like a saving grace because it gave me a purpose. And then started working consistently. By 16, I had my airbrush business. So, you know, I had some things, but I, I wasn't really thinking that long term other than when I was 15, I had a summer job as a bookkeeper. And I was like, hmm, I'll be an accountant. That's, that's a solid. I was always good at math. I put aside all of my wondrous, grandiose dreams, joined the military in order to try to get the money for school. It's my childhood in a nutshell. What did you airbrush? T-shirts. I did people's names. I drew characters. You know, that was kind of the era, early 90s. Everybody get an airbrush shirt for their birthday and things like that. I also learned how to make Jim Henson style puppets in junior high from a guy who used to work for Jim Henson. So I stumbled upon that opportunity by being a truant, cutting class religiously. And the art teacher caught me in the stairwell one time. And, you know, he just wanted to look out for me and say, hey, why don't you just come hang out in my in my lab and work, it, which is if you're looking back, like he could have totally got in trouble for that. Cause it was like, who is this kid you have in your, I can't remember his name. I just remember he was kind of a heavy set guy with blonde hair, like a beard. And he was just obsessed with making puppets. You know, and that's what he did. That's so cool. Do you remember any of the puppets that you made? For my art project in high school, I actually created a puppet show, created two puppets. I wrote a 20 page paper about the art of puppetry and got a perfect, got a 4.0 on that. Had to give a presentation on it. So yeah, one was me and one was my best friend, Freddie. He actually helped me perform the puppet show. I actually still have that on VHS tape from like 1996, 97, 97. That's so cute. I actually worked for yeah. a special effects animation company in Burbank and they made puppets. They were puppet yeah. producers. Mm -hmm. They did the puppets for Team America. Yes, I love that movie. The marionettes, yeah. Mm -hmm. That was so cool to see how people turn into puppets. Because mm -hmm. the puppeteers, when they're making a move and communicate, they turn into the puppet. Yeah, the puppet isn't alive. It's all a person. It's, I'm hungry. 
You know, it's like, you know, you become the character. They're amazingly talented. Hey, Bert. Hey, Ernie. <laughs> I think you might have uh, an act for that. Yeah, I do. But when I look at the idea of doing voiceover, you're just an employee for someone, honestly. I've done a few of those gigs, but it's not that I don't like to hurry up and wait. I want to just produce and bring, you know, the products and services to the world that I would like to do. So kind of getting in line and trying to be hired by somebody to do a voiceover for them. You know, when I do my comedy, I, I perform. So when I do my comedy, I have a chance to get that aspect of my creativity out on my own terms. Oh my God, I totally want you to say, better call daddy. <laughs> better call daddy. <laughs> this episode makes you want to call daddy. <laughs> yeah, my, my father is deceased. He was actually killed when I was nine. So no calling daddy for me. That's sad. Yeah. How did that happen? He was gunned down by an associate of his that was looking for someone else. So wrong place, wrong time. That's horrible. How did that affect you? In ways that I could can hardly even verbalize, honestly. Never knew what it's like to have one, you know? I don't even know what to say to that. That is so hard. Did you dream of what it would be yeah. like to have a dad around? At times. I mean, at that point, he wasn't really in my life very much from age three on, other than by phone here and there. So I had gone through a lot of life, you know, just not even seeing him in it. You know, I had other people. The, the biggest person that I, you know, missed tremendously was my mother when I was living with my grandmother. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you wonder, you see other people with their father interacting with, but a lot of my friends growing up, their father wasn't around. It was very common to be raised by your grandparents and your aunties and things like that. Because that, that was a serious era where there was a, a lot of drug use all throughout the black community, you know, in the, in the inner city regions for whatever reason. You know, at first I think guys did it because it, it was cool, but I also did, did think that they did it because of the way that they were shut out economically from being a part of society. You know, when you have limited options, you sometimes some people seek to just self-medicate. So, so I, I look back at it with a lot of compassion for the situation, but you know, I have a daughter now and I'm, I've definitely broken the cycle. And my brother has three sons and my sister has a son and is about to have another son. So, so you know, we've definitely broken the cycle, so to speak. That's amazing. Tell me about having your first child. She was not planned. I'm, I'm not with her mother. It's not a, we're not in a relationship any longer, but, you know, I talk to my daughter all the time. I see her as much as I can. And she's a very, very smart girl. And she has a lot of loving grandparents in her life and family. And so she's super supported and it's an amazing feeling, but it's, you know, it's a, a lot of responsibility that I never imagined. I always thought this world was too crazy to even want to bring a child into it, to be honest with you. But then when she was here, I was like, oh my God, I can't imagine not having this opportunity. So I definitely want more. I'm definitely, you know, looking for someone who really wants to be a mother, really wants to be a wife. I believe in marriage. I believe it's possible in these days. I know it's really getting hard. People are really taught to be so independent. And I'm a big believer in co, co not codependency, but interdependency, especially the older we get. Like I'm 40 and I feel like women that are my age that are still single, 
yeah, the odds are they, they're going to stay that way because it's just too easy to not to. So for me, I'm thinking I need to find someone in that 25 to 30 range who wants to be in a committed married relationship, wants to be a parent, has done some work and some research into what that was required. Because, you know, people say, oh, there's no handbook for life. There's no, there are tons of handbooks for everything now. You know, there are tons of handbooks on how to be a good parent, how to be a good spouse. And I think you have to find somebody who has that growth mindset that really wants that to build a life with. And I know she's out there and I've been patient, but now for me, it's like, hey, just focus on my business, focus on my ability to, to support a family, more importantly, especially in these times where, you know, the idea of working for 40 years someplace and getting a, a pension is just about gone forever. Less than 5% of companies in the United States even offer pensions. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, I got to just build my, build my business, you know, be smart with my investments. And, you know, having kids is very expensive. I mean, they say it's like a quarter of a million dollars for one kid. Luckily, my daughter's college is already paid for. That's probably one of the, the factors that makes relationships so difficult these days is that to be in a relationship is expensive. Why did you and your baby's mom break up? My daughter's mother and I, we broke up before we, she was conceived. We just had a differences of, of values. You know, we were kind of in a long distance relationship. And I think the more time that I got to see what we were like together, I realized that we just had difference in values and she just wanted me to convert to hers and I wasn't willing to. And so called it, called it off. But then the familiarity of the relationship it had gone a little over a year, but that's just because of the distance. I think had we been in each other's presence, it would have maybe lasted three months. Has your child ever wanted you guys to be together? Um, not, I mean, I, I don't know. She's never, she's, you know, sometimes she, when she was really young, she'd wonder, because, you know, I would come see her often. And her mother, for a couple of years, still was kind of hopeful. And at times I thought, maybe I should, maybe I should try to work it out, you know, but we just weren't a, a match, you know. We had such huge differences that I feel like what happens is a lot of times people show up with their representative in a relationship early on, and they just they try to be as agreeable as they can. She's very nice. We just we're just very different in our sensibilities. What do yeah. you find funny? I like a lot of dark humor. Yeah, I'm into a lot of dark humor. So my favorite comedians are Richard Pryor, Dave Chappelle. Eddie Murphy, George Carlin, even Bill Cosby, you know, rest in peace. I mean, I know he's not dead yet, but he might as well be because he's locked up <laughs> and uh, for doing some, you know, horrific activities of which my opinion on it doesn't matter, but can't go around being a jerk like that. It's going to catch up to you eventually. Yeah, that was a shame. I loved him growing up. Yeah, he was everybody's dad. So you said that you do comedy too? I've been doing stand-up for 16 years now. Started in 2005. Moonlighting, that was, like I said, that was one of the reasons why I, people in the military were like, because people that weren't in the military were like, oh, I didn't know, wow, you don't seem like you'd be in the military. And then in the military, people was like, wow, you seem like you, you could be doing so many things on the outside. But there's a little bit of that jealousy, I felt like. Do you remember your first live show? Of course, yeah. I was nervous as heck. Tell me about that. I spent months and months and months preparing, and it was in front of about 225 people. I opened up the show for a headliner. 
normally it would be the owner of the club would come out warm he would kind of warm the crowd up a little bit and then a headliner would come out and just do 45 minutes to an hour i convinced the club owner that i could bring out a good crowd i think i had maybe 40 or 45 people or so there and uh, then the rest were just there to see the normal headliner and i just did like 12 13 minutes out the gate first time out on stage it was a blast it was good like people people enjoyed it they were like wow that was good it was better than I thought. People were like it was better than I was expecting. And then the next day, I came back out and I made all these corrections, and you know, and I killed it even harder the next day. Have you met any of your heroes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I Dave Chappelle was one of my idols, and I met him in 2009. I saw him when he got back from Africa. Saw him at a live. We were in Oakland. Saw him, and he actually. Uh, made fun of my comedy business card on stage. I actually have that recording on my website. So what's next for you? What's next for me is just continuing to increase my profile in the, in the digital marketing space. That's what I do for a living. Just expand my brand there, expand my brand as a transformational comedian. So I don't just consider myself like a motivational speaker or just a comedian. I kind of combine the two. So transformational comedy. So the idea is to to do motivational talks with, with a lot of humor in them. But then also just, for me, I'm a big believer in like marketing, no matter what you're doing is just the key. Marketing is getting the word out. Marketing is connecting with the right people. So I have a book that I'm finishing up called Super Connecting, The Art and Science of Creating Meaningful Relationships in a Digital Age. Very timely, just continuing to grow my, my business. Businesses. When does your That's book come out? I want to say September 30th or sooner. That's really exciting. Very exciting. I feel like it's a breached baby at this point. It's been stuck inside. It's been waiting to come out. It's been a couple of years in the making. It, was, it took years before I was, the idea came to me. And then I actually wrote the book in 10 days. But then I was like, I wrote this too fast. Maybe it's not good. You know, I just started to have all of these different doubts. And then I came out with a a launch strategy and it was it was kind of contingent on me kind of winning the world championship of public speaking and so then last year i made it to the finals of los angeles for that contest came in second place that's amazing though yeah I, i really feel like i came in first but i got i feel like i got hosed i'll be honest but so i was like okay you know what maybe i'll just hold up i'm gonna do it again next year maybe i'll release the book next year because I wanted to have a big, you know, splash to then ha- announce the book. But then I realized there's never a perfect time. That book just scratches the surface. It's very much a how-to. It's very much a take these steps. Here's a battle plan. I'm pretty proud of it. I just have to trust that it's it's finished. Like, because there's so much I could add to it. There's always like a more that could go in. And every month I have a new super connection that occurs. And it's like, taking the case study of how I made that happen. That's what the book's all about. I already want it. <laughs> One good tip from the book. Or you could tell me a story of somebody that you reached in an unconventional way. This story is not even in the book, but I'm a big believer in the power of voice and the power of video. There's an app that I use called Scribd, which is like an audio book app. Happily send you my affiliate link for it. Give you two months free. Um, but I love it because it's like an alternative to Audible, but they've got about 85% of what Audible has. 
But for $8.99 a month, you get unlimited listens versus $9.99 and get your one credit on Audible. So from a value price utility, it, it's way, to me, it has way more value for most people. I was using the app and what I realized was since November of 2019, I had been walking every day between six to 12 miles every day, right before COVID hit, right? So I had released 30 pounds from my body. I went from 246 to 216, right before COVID hit. I looked at what I was using. I had a, a couple of different apps that I was using to track my progress, track my weight loss, track my mileage. And one of the apps that I realized I was listening to on a regular basis was this app script. I was listening to different books and different topics, health, wellness. So I felt compelled to reach out. I was like, hey, let me see who's running this app. So, you know, I went online, I looked around, I found the CEO of the app on LinkedIn. And I saw him posting on Twitter and stuff. I, I noticed there wasn't any real strategy in, with his social media. It was kind of like he's there, he's doing it. But when I looked up, I realized that over a five-year period, his company raised $100 million for this app. So their only competitor is Amazon and Audible. They have 100 million users worldwide, but about a million of them are paying customers. So I was like, wow, imagine how they would do if they actually had some real social media strategy. So I was going to approach him to pitch my services as a, you know, to contract and get a contract with them. So I sent him a video message. He really liked it, added me back, booked the time on my calendar. And we talked right during that first month of COVID. We had about a 40 minute virtual coffee together. He then put me in touch with his chief marketing officer. You know, I've given him some ideas. My angle was, hey, I'm a veteran. And uh, I know you guys give two months away free for affiliates to give away, but what if we did something for vets? I was like, he's like, oh, I'll just give vets, vets can use the app for free. or like full access to all of the features and stuff. And I'm like, that would be a great campaign because it would attract a ton of veterans, but also more importantly, it would attract customers who love that patriotic message and they would use the app gladly pay a fee but knowing that hey i can let all my veteran friends know about this app because vets especially love telling each other where the goods the good gouges like what's the good deals for vets where to go to get this where to go to get that so it would spread like wildfire even more well thank you so much this is a lot of fun my pleasure thanks for having me on I'm, thanks for the flexibility on the timing i'm glad we can get it in i hate missing meetings and rescheduling things but this was some things that were just out of my control. Well, thanks for bringing that energy, and I hope you get another eight hours of sleep tonight. You know what? It's nine o'clock here, and <laughs> I'm feeling like, you know, I'm going to just Netflix and chill for a little bit. Oh, boy. Let's go to Grandpa. This is the story of Jamar, and yet, to me, it's the story of stepping stones of progress, where every stone that he steps on is always moving in a forward direction. And he looks at everything as a way for him to be independent and to be his own man and not where he's going to, as we've said in previous episodes, where he's going to get stifled, where he's going to work for others, or he's going to be uh, ceilings put on top of him or, or closed into a box. He's going to find a way to take the best of everything and take stepping stones and 
move forward with his life. This is a, a very, very good story of, again, how to overcome adversity and learning that communicating with people is the key, networking with people. But he has a tone of creativity where he's able to master things by all of his experiences that he has. So he calls it a jack of all trades. But really, to be able to master things, sometimes that's what it takes is to understand all things. And then you're able to discover that you can let loose your creativity and be able to excel in whatever your, wherever your creativity wants to take you, where he doesn't put a limit on that either, or saying that it has to be in a certain particular field or area. And what he calls that, which I agree, is that he's learned how to learn. And isn't that the best degree to have, where you're able to learn and adapt to anything that people will show you? Because you're open to learning and building a team around you is also the story of success. People that, uh, that learn to, uh, to understand things and be able to judge things by being involved in so many things are able to find the people that it becomes their forte and becomes part of your team. And you're able to uplift by learning so many different things from people that so-called experts or those that really have a passion at whatever that item might be. I like how his mom, who's had ups and downs with different abuses and where he's lost his father, where he was gunned and shot down, and yet there was still a, a person that saw him just drifting, took him underneath his shoulder at school, where look, look at how a teacher that is understanding, even though it's done in an unorthodox way, took him under his wing, where he became very creative and got a passion for what he was passionate in, which was these puppets and things. Learning to play sports is also a, a very, very good way to develop team play and your own abilities and to where you can let yourself loose without having to just be in a classroom learning. There's so many things that you can learn hands-on that are not in a classroom. As you know, your dad was interested in many different sports, and he was also you know, on debate teams and in student council, and uh, where he had the development of where I played chess uh, to a, a very high level in high school and in, and in uh, grade school. And yet I know what it is to be picked on by being Jewish, not being necessarily a, a racial thing, being black. But I got into a lot of fights and defending people that called my friends dirty Jews. Okay, so I, I know what it is to defend your honor, defend your friends, defend uh, yourself from hate that makes no sense. But the truth of the matter is, is that we have to be able to rise above it and understand that it's not really about us when it comes to this hatred. It's the deficiencies of others taking it out on us. And it's the same thing that if you're smart in something or you're being successful in something, there's always somebody there that uh, just wants to try to tear you down because you're up and they're down or they're not up. 
it's a very cruel world at times. But the way to get around that is to be able to continue to search out people that want to grow, want to develop, that want to be loyal, that want to be just, that want to feel like with good cooperation that everybody can succeed with that type of formula rather than knocking people down to succeed. Today's episode is sponsored by Rin10 Media. If you want to look and sound your best for a podcast of your own, you want to get in touch with Rin10 Media. When I first contacted them, Better Call Daddy was just a twinkle in my daddy's eye. And now, only after a couple months in, we're at like 50 episodes. Reach out to info at ren10media.co.za and use the subject line, Better Call Daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Yeah. <laughs>